Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Michelle Obama's memoir has just come out in paperback. It's called Becoming, and it sold more than 14 million copies worldwide in hardcover. It was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, NPR, People Magazine, and lots of other places. Michelle Obama also won a Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album of the Year. We spoke with Amy Willens about the book when it was first published. Amy, of course, is a writer and journalist who's written extensively about Haiti, the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, which she covers for this podcast. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and the former Jerusalem bureau chief of The New Yorker magazine. She wrote the award-winning book on Haiti, Farewell, Fred Voodoo, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. We talked about Michelle Obama's book in November 2018. Well, we're interested in what the book has to say about politics because hers were a bit mysterious, maybe more complicated than she let on. She was part of two presidential campaigns, a decade at the top of American politics. And of course, the Republicans went after her, starting in 2008 with all the fury and all the lies they could launch. She reminds us about that at the very beginning of her book. Yeah, she she says she wants to take apart the three words, angry black woman, which is the worst thing that she is for those people. Um, and she believes that it's her blackness and her femininity that were the real targets of the people who were detracting from her stature when she was campaigning with her husband. Also, while Barack Obama, as she often says, was kind of a unicorn and a hybrid and a very different kind of person, with Kenyan ancestry and and just a, a, ver- a very strange being, she herself was an American-born Black American, and that's why she feels a lot of the hatred came down on her. We look to Michelle's book to learn what she has to say about her real politics. In her story about growing up, it's important to her, as you've said, that she's from Chicago's South Side, a legendary black neighborhood in America, maybe second only to Harlem. And in high school, she was best friends with Jesse Jackson's daughter around their house a lot as Jesse was preparing to run for president. What does Michelle have to say about being in the center of black militant politics in America in the, in the 80s? She wasn't that into it. (laughs) She says it was kind of fun and interesting, and there were sometimes famous people there, and it largely stood in the way of her and her friend Santita Jackson getting to where they wanted to go because they were relying on the grown-ups, and the grown-ups would, like, have to stop off at a meeting and then have to stop off at some, you know, place where they picked up food for some rally, and then they wouldn't get to the shoe store in time to catch the sale. She actually says, I liked seeing what they were doing, but, quote, I needed rather desperately to get to the water tower place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. 
So, I mean, she's portraying herself as a teenage all-American girl, and she wants her readers to empathize with that and to relate to it. She's very concerned with making herself what my students all call relatable rather than high-class first lady with intellectual interests. Or, or someone, even as a teenager, engaged with the political project of black America. And yet she knew very well that her family had decided to stay on the South Side when many people moved out, not just white people, but middle-class black people. She wanted to remain there. Her family wanted to remain there. Her father was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was very involved in Democratic politics. She has to have known more than just when the K-Swiss sneaker sale was on. And of course, she went to Princeton because her older brother, Craig Robinson, was already there as a basketball star. She was at Princeton from 81 to 85. She says she had never lived in a white world before. At Princeton, she says she lived mostly in a black student world, hanging around at the Third World Center. The interesting thing to me is that the chapter on Princeton, she says nothing about ideas, courses, books, arguments, even though she minored in African-American studies. I know. It's a really strange thing. She has to have been thinking and growing politically while she was there. Also, the experience of being the only black kid in a classroom or seeing yourself as one of a very tiny minority in such a white bastion as Princeton after having lived on the south side of Chicago has to have been completely disorienting. She talks about it to a degree, and she talks about meeting her roommates and having a white roommate who didn't want to live with her anymore. And she talks about being around her older brother and at the Third World Center. Yes, that's what it was called then. But she doesn't mention, you know, reading Franz Fanon or Marx or any, or Malcolm X or, uh, you know, any of the grand figures from African-American writing. In contrast, Obama's book about when he went to Occidental College is all about how opened his eyes to be in black studies and to read Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a transformative experience as he tells his story. Of course, he was a kid from Hawaii who wasn't really African-American at all, as you have said. But still, you wonder if there wasn't more to her intellectual life at Princeton, or, or maybe there wasn't. She met Barack in 1989. Barack had been a community organizer on the South Side for three years before he decided to go to law school and then came back. I mean, she barely mentions the fact that her uh, husband had been a community organizer for three years in her neighborhood. No, she doesn't seem interested in it at all. She doesn't seem to have really talked to him very much about it, although there are, there's a paragraph here or there about you know, being at a bar and having him talk about community organizing. But it doesn't seem to be the top of her list about things she treasures in him. Probably her most famous statement in the 2008 campaign when, after Obama won the nomination, she said, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. We kind of know, or we think we know what she meant, that black man could run for president, huge thing in American history. It was a classic political gaffe when somebody says something true that you're not supposed to say. And after that, we think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought, but it got her in a lot of trouble. And in the book, she takes this up and says she was just misunderstood. 
Yes, she says she was misunderstood. She was very proud of her family for having gotten through this election. The country was so nice to them. It was so heartening to be a black person and receive this kind of understanding when for so long one had feared that one might not. All of these things, but never really addressing why that kind of a statement would be so incendiary to so many. But what interested me, too, is that afterwards, she kind of went to Barack and said, I'm so sorry. I never realized that would be taken in that way. I speak too freely. What should we do? And then like 20 minutes later, she had a team. <laughs> and she had a personal aide. She had a scheduler. She had a media consultant. She had an airplane. And she had hair and makeup on the plane. <laughs> so that's what fixed Michelle Obama and stopped her, really, from speaking in that way. And uh, what she said, her media consultant told her, was to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about. And what did that turn out to be? That turned out to be my love for my husband and my kids, my connection to working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. I guess the Chicago's a little, a little incendiary. <laughs> Only a little. No, but what's interesting about that is what she was told by her media consultant was essentially assume the role of the first lady already. Before your first lady, act like a first lady. Concern yourself with women's problems, women's things, and your husband and your children, and stop talking about, you know, politics. And in fact, there's very little about the other parts of the campaigns, the people they're running against, how they get votes, how they don't get votes. She talks about this great post, uh, first time I've been proud of my country. Uh, after that, her first appearance on The View, where she sat around with the usual suspects. And she says, quote, talking about attacks against me, yes, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's just, it hurts me to, to read that. And then she says, and people started buying the black and white dress that I was wearing on the show. I was having an impact. In the 2016 campaign, she was back on the road campaigning now for Hillary and against Trump. You know, I think a lot of us think her greatest moment came in the speech she gave right after Trump's Access Hollywood pussy grabbing tape. Let's listen to a little bit of it. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this, and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel. It's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it, it hurts. 
it's a great speech. It's a political speech. Uh, she has the tremor in the voice. The tremor in the voice is not fake. And, uh, and she has two girls. And, you know, I was making fun just now about her saying the things I really care about are only my girls and my husband and my pantyhose. But she cares about how her girls grow up in America. And this was horrifying to her. And to see a candidate like that running... I don't want to get a tremor in my voice, but against a woman of really a reasonable stature, political stature, and able to talk like that. And indeed, Michelle was right. It was swept under the rug, essentially. It may come back to haunt him, but. The New York Times the next day, commenting on that speech, called her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history, close quote. What does she say about this in the book? She describes this very momentous thing in one paragraph as if she's uh, as if she's not so proud of it. And she should be really proud of it. Not only was it a great speech and no doubt partly at least written by her, but perfectly delivered. And finally comes the bad ending of the whole story. Obama is replaced in the White House by Donald Trump. They did everything they could on the campaign trail to prevent that and they failed We wonder, why does she think about this? Why does she think Trump got elected? Why did Hillary lose? Was there anything Obama could have done as president to have made the Democrats stronger in 2016? How does she explain Trump's victory in the book? She says, I'm not a political person, and so I'm not going to attempt an analysis. And that is just a giant cop-out on so many levels, really. First of all, she's a political person. Second of all, she's done an analysis of it. Why isn't she offering that analysis? That's a really important analysis for the American people to hear. But she and the editors of her book have decided not to permit that to be put into print. And at the end, she sums up Barack's accomplishments as president and her own as first lady. Well, there's the vegetable garden. And it's bigger than it ever was, and she's put some new trees in it. There's the um, new set of dishware, the Obama presidential dishware that she oversaw. There's the um, campaign for kids' healthy eating, crucially important, especially in the black community because of so much eating out at fast food restaurants. And the, the concomitant Let's Move, which is the dancing exercise program that she propagated. And what else? That's pretty much it. Programs in the Third World for Girls' Education. So this is not a political book. It's not a book about what she learned about politics or how she learned to do politics or how the Obamas changed politics in America. What kind of book is it? So what I think is that it has a carefully crafted uh, demographic target. And that target is women. I think it's women voters. And that she doesn't want to bore us with policy, but they're a political family from Chicago. Those people talk politics like it's Rice Krispies. And all of that is really missing from this book. You know, I wonder, is it possible that Michelle Obama actually is not a political person, that the thing she cares most about is childhood obesity and healthy eating? We would like her to be more political, more of a left-wing Democrat, and maybe she isn't. Whatever politics there are, she is not at a point right now where she wants to discuss that. But I also think that those issues that you talk about, uh, childhood obesity and the let's move uh, idea, 
are political issues and that she thinks of them that way. It's not like decorating the White House. Well, we're talking here as if now that it's over, she should tell us the real story of what she really thinks, but maybe it's not over. Well, this was my thought in reading it, that it is such a carefully scrubbed and attended to book. She's left so much politics out. Who does that, really? Who leaves politics out of what they say? Politicians. <laughs> and then, so I thought, she's running for office, and she's kind of clearing the the stage. She's getting rid of all the garbage from her past and not um, certainly not bringing any new stuff in. And at the end, she says, I am never running for office, never, never, never. But do I believe that? Not from reading this book. And she's doing a book tour in 15,000-seat arenas. And what else is the purpose of this book? Is it to tell Michelle Obama's story? It's to tell the story of becoming Michelle Obama and onward. And onward. Amy Willens wrote about Michelle Obama for the Washington Post. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, is out now in paperback with a new introduction. It's also out in an edition adapted for young readers. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.